It's not about you, it's about your audience. It's always about the receiver of your communication. That's the, where you place your attention. That's where you place your focus. And the more you genuinely do that, the more powerful and effective you'll be as a communicator. If I asked you what it takes to be truly influential, I'm sure most of you would say the ability to be able to communicate. Whether it's commanding a room, a meeting, an auditorium, how you use your body, your hands, your voice to demand attention and create impact makes all the difference in the world. And for any of you that's ever seen a TED talk, you will know that those that stand out and get shared millions of times, there's a craftsmanship to what they do and how they explain their ideas. I've spent many, many years working with thought leaders, men and women who get up on stage and share their ideas. And there's one person who I always look to as an inspiration when it comes to being a true master of communication. Anyone that's asked me for some tips and ideas around speaking, he is the one that I would usually point you into the direction of. And after this particular episode, I would recommend you check him out on YouTube. There's a number of amazing videos there. So without any further ado, our guest this week is Colin James, the great Colin James. From speaking, facilitating, emceeing, to teaching others how to master their own skills, he is an absolute legend. In this episode, we talk about storytelling and how the best stories always come to those that call them. And how do we call them? How do you find ideas for stories to bring your presentations to life? We'll be covering that. We talk about making it personal. Where's the line between you, your professional self, your authentic self, and the self that you want to share from stage, the self that you're comfortable sharing? We talk about structure, we get really down into structure. CPD, what that means, Y-frames, the technical science behind building an amazing presentation. As part of that, we talk about three quick wins. So if this has ever happened to you, I know it's happened to me, where suddenly you've got an hour to prepare for a game-changing presentation in front of some really important people. You wanna smash it out of the park, but you've got no idea how to structure a presentation in a compelling way in a short period of time. So we'll cover that. And also dealing with difficult people, how you hold a difficult space, how you use your personal gravity to command a room, get everybody on board, and still maintain some kind of consensus. So he is the mentor of great mentors. I've seen him hold his space and command attention in many rooms of influential people, often totally terrifying people, who all know how to be heard above the noise, and he has the power to silence them all. He's a true craftsman of communication, and that is a rare thing. And I'm so pleased to be able to share just some of his wisdom with you today. Welcome to Inside Influence, Colin James. Thanks, Julie. Lovely to have you. Lovely to have you on the on the show and having worked together for a number of years and have known you for even longer, putting this podcast together was a bit of a challenge, I've got to tell you. Because mm-hmm. there was just, there's so many topics that I'd love to talk to you about. But we've managed to get it down into a small number of questions. So let's kick straight into it. The first question that I usually ask people is, introvert versus extrovert and 
to give a bit of context to that, I find that one of the pervading stories out there around people who are maybe a little bit nervous about claiming their influence or certainly those that are nervous about speaking is that that's something that extroverts do. You know, you need to be extroverted to to get on stage. You need to be extroverted to stand up for yourself in a meeting. And I haven't found that to be true at all. And so mm. I want to ask you, are you introvert or extrovert? So the whole introvert-extrovert um, study around human personality behavior, and Myers-Briggs, I think, is the one that really coined this or made this a very popular concept. Uh, the idea of extrovert and introvert is to do with energy. So where do you get your energy from? Uh, extroverts get energy from people, uh, sometimes activity and activity with people. Introverts get their energy from themselves, uh, time out, and in fact, they find people exhaust them. And I, on that Myers-Briggs thing, I score zero on extrovert. Zero. So zero. There's so your I'm answer. complete introvert. Uh, 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 Erica, my wife, uh, sometimes describes me as almost hermit-like um, because it's not that I don't like people. I do like people, of course, but it's the amount of energy that um, gets drained out of me in the context, particularly social context. Um, where I just find it exhausting. Like for me to go to a party, I just don't understand parties. That you go to a place with crowds of people shouting at each other over loud music as they get chemically inspired, talking about nothing in particular, I just cannot get it. Um, whereas I watch extroverts just love that. They just they come alive when there's an opportunity to connect and party and all that sort of stuff. So it's, a, it's an ingrained... Um, a preference that seems to be acquired from birth. There's just no, there's no real explanation for it. Uh, but um, <clears throat> as an introvert, that doesn't mean I can't communicate. Well, that was going to be my next question because yeah. for somebody, and I have witnessed you in, in social situations and I can attest to the fact that you, <laughs> that you feel highly uncomfortable. Um, yet, yet, you know, you have ended up in a position through a journey that's led you to spend most of your time on stage in front of, you know, sometimes thousands of people. Yeah. So how does an introvert get there? <clears throat> so it's about the intent. And um, as an educator, <clears throat> I have an intention to share ideas, knowledge, insight, uh, transfer skills and support people in their growth and development. Now, an educator's job is to facilitate a process through the uh, application of knowledge and behavioral uh, strategic support that allows people to develop skills and grow in, in, in their insights and understanding. So that's an educator. As, a, as someone who wants to do that, I've learned techniques and mechanisms that facilitate that outcome. Introvert and extrovert is a, to do with my energy and therefore is irrelevant um, to, to, to that outcome. Colin, in, in mastering communication, the first thing you do on stage is vital. And it's all about that first impression, right? So I'm thinking that the same would apply in a more intimate environment, like a meeting room. So if you only had five or six people in a room, would that still apply? Without question. So, so th think about how people walk into meetings. Uh, what does what does your gait, the way that you walk in, say about you? What is it? What are you? What are you signalling? Now, if someone walks in brusquely with uh, a lot of energy and and urgency about them, take their seat and they're sitting up their heads are up and their eyes are connecting with everyone in the room. That signals something very different to someone who just sort of slops into the room, collapses on a chair, 
and everything about them goes, I don't care, or I'm just exhausted, or what the hell am I doing here? That's all being communicated without a word being said. So the idea of what's your physiology saying about you in those first 30 seconds counts. Uh, and one of the suggestions I always make for people, uh, particularly people that are seeking to build a career and build a, and ascend the, the, the pathways, particularly in big companies, uh, this is going to sound very strange, but the feedback that I've got on this is profound. And the, what I suggest people do is walk faster. <laughs> walk faster. Walk, walk faster, faster into the room? Everywhere you go. Everywhere. Just a little bit faster. So uh, I, was, I was doing this with um, ANZ uh, a couple months ago, uh, and we were in their head office in Melbourne, and we had a group of about 12 people. And we were, were, we were talking about this whole notion of building professional brand. How do you build your personal brand? So I said, all right, let's, 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 let's go outside into the atrium. And in ANZ um, head office, uh, there's a, uh, they have this big open reception area. And you can see lots of people walking around. And I said, oh, let's, let's, so what do you notice? What do you notice? What do you notice? And eventually someone said, everyone seems to be walking at the same speed. And th this is herd activity. And every company I go into, I'll notice the different speeds that people walk. Uh, if there's a, a company that's slow, dormant, bureaucratic, people walk slower. If people are working in an attitude of reluctant compliance, you can tell just by the body language that surrounds you. And I said, okay, so you see what's happening here. There's a herd, unconscious uh, commitment to sameness. Everyone's looking the same, walking the same. If you walk faster you change the dynamic in the, in, in the room or in the space that you opera, uh, occupy. And uh, we, this was a two-day program. I said, okay, at the next breaks, just try this out. And, of course, that's what they did. They all went their separate ways and walked a little faster. One guy came back. He said, I went up to the 12th floor to my um, office, uh, and I just walked to my desk faster than normal. And... He got comments, people going, my God, what's happening? Is there something I need to know? Because they assumed that there was something occurring that was requiring response. There was some urgency in play. There was some necessitation or necessity to get busy. Yeah. And that was just signaled by his walk. So you're so upping your vibrancy small... almost. Exactly. Uh, and it's turning on the switch. It's, it's game time. It's game face. You know, it's, in theatre, it's show time. You know, you, mm. you, you head up, shoulders back, walk on. You know, you need that first impression impact. And it's a conscious act of choice. Can we be intentional and authentic at the same time when we're, when we're looking to master our communication? And the doctor has had a really shitty day and they've got problems at home and one of their children is sick. Uh, and you walk into the office and they're sitting there looking morose and gloomy and down, how would you feel? Well, you'd feel disturbed by that. You want your doctor to be present, uh, professional, turned on, switched on. So is the doctor being inauthentic? No. The doctor's being unprofessional if they're allowing their so-called authentic state to be in play. So it's about context. You're not, you can never, you can never really be inauthentic in the sense of you can't not be you. You're still you in all your complexity and all your, you know, silliness and 
all the stuff that makes you a human being. But it's about cho choosing the appropriate behavior to produce the result. And yeah. as a communicator, it's about the outcome. It's about influence. It's about your audience. It's about the support of the process. And that sometimes requires to step into character, to step into, into the professional modus. Um, and it works. I'm so I'm really glad you brought that up. It's actually on my list of things to talk to you about. Um, I was with somebody actually just yesterday and we were talking about presentation skills and they had to go and they have to go and do a, a presentation where the response that they're expecting isn't necessarily positive from the room. And we were talking mm -hmm. about energy and they have a habit of speaking very quickly. Yeah. And I was saying, you know, you need to slow it down, slow it down a minute, take a breath give them a chance to digest what you're talking about. And that was what he came back with. He said, but that's, you know, this is my passion. That's, that's not me. That's not me being authentic. And for me, it goes back to exactly what you were talking about. It goes back to intention. If, if your intention is to be understood to the highest level possible, if your intention is to connect as well as possible. And if your intention is to set a tone for a meeting that's going to enable the best possible outcome, then you absolutely have to, own that regardless of how authentically you might be feeling at that time. It's part of leadership. Yeah. Now, this whole idea of uh, authenticity and its relationship to competence, it comes down to the understanding of how you see and perceive yourself. I'm currently working with a senior executive in a coaching capacity who wants to become a better people leader. He's a He's a technical guy. Uh, you describe him as a conventional geek. And his um, social skills and his ability to connect with um, people is not his gift. Uh, and he wants to learn how to do this better. And so everything, I, every time I suggest something, his response is, well, that's just not me. And my response back to him, of course, is, yes, you're right. It's not just you yet. Once you've developed your competence, you'll develop the behavior choice that can support you in achieving your outcomes. So yeah, that's what this whole, it's just not me, is a bit of a furphy. It's just not you yet. And once you've got the competence, you'll develop an authentic ability with it once you get to unconscious competence. So the idea of recognizing first that stories are constantly informing us, guiding us, and influencing us. Then starting to think about how you use stories to achieve positive and, and productive outcomes. And Remember that stories are felt. They're not just understood. It's not, a, it's not data. It's experience in a virtual form. It's vicarious. But I feel it. I can experience it. And when I experience it, I have a full body connection to it. Then I link my content and message to that story. The likelihood of that story, of that content messaging being retained, is elevated dramatically. Hence the use of storytelling. If, okay. if I'm looking to tell a story and I'm looking at this story, story that I want to tell and I want to tell it in the most compelling way possible, what are, the, what are the core principles I need to be looking for here? You need the four W's. The four W's are when did this happen? And I said last week on a Thursday morning. Right. So that was the when. It was very specific. It wasn't recently. It wasn't a couple of weeks ago. It wasn't last month. It was last week on a Thursday morning. Right, so that, that immediately gives it a legitimacy in, in a temporal frame, in time. I was sitting in my office. Now, sitting in the office means I, I, I now know where you are. 
Now, I could have gone even more specifically and saying I was sitting in my office in, in, in um, our head office uh, in Darling Harbour, right? That, that You could have even gone to that level of detail. But just something that gives it a where you are located. So when, time, location, where you're located, who was involved, so character. So in this case, it's just yourself looking at an email. Uh, but the, the sensory detail, I was sitting at my desk and a ding, an email arrived. Now the ding email arrived. Suddenly everyone in their mind's eye are now sitting in front of a desk, in front of a screen, and an email arrives in their inbox. They are there with the, the storyteller. So I opened it and I started to read. Now this brings it into a real time. I'm reading, reading. And then the uh, the, so you've now got the who, and the next character is introduced, Sally. So now you've got the two characters, the, the narrator, now engaged in a, this relationship with the Sally. And then what happened? Now you describe the event, and the event was the outline of her past, the current difficulties, and how the bank supported her. So it's when, uh, where, who, what. That's the, the, the structure of the story then in the delivery of the story you tell it in a deeper body voice so you tell the story from here it's not up here if you, if you listen to reporters on tv they'll go i'm standing out here in uh, Stan, uh strathfield where this afternoon and they've got this higher head-based voice and it's now i'm, not, I'm now going to give you the facts of what happened back to you right so it's got that sort of energy Storytelling is, is a body experience. So you want to bring it down into a deeper tone, deeper register, and slow down. And um, this immediately facilitates uh, visceral engagement. The body is now engaged in the experience. It's a very important presentation. It could be a pitch for investment. It could be a keynote. It could just simply be a presentation to my boss about a, about a new idea. Is there a particular structure you know, like the, the go-to structure that, that you know of that works, works really well. It doesn't have to be complicated, but a structure that I can start with. Okay. So the, the, the fundamental structure to story is um, the event, the incident. If something happens, there's a point and then there's a link. So there's the three steps. So the event or incident is much like the Sally situation, uh, the where, when, who, what um, stuff. Then it needs to come to a clear point. So let's say I'm pitching. Uh, pitching means I want someone to decide in the affirmative to say yes to an idea that I have. One of the things I know about influence is that uh, people are influenced by social proof. If other people have done it or other people have supported it. Uh, if I can get celebrity endorsement, someone higher of higher status than the person I'm pitching to, um, that's even more persuasive. So my stories will therefore be linked to the outcome that I'm after. So I'm pitching something and then I go to my story. Um, I, was, I was just talking uh, last week to the CEO of X and when I shared this idea with him, um, uh, she said to me, now I've talked about a CEO, obviously a very senior person of another company, might be similar to the one that you're pitching to, and this is what she said, and I'd give the name. I wouldn't make this up, by the way. It would be a real story, of course. But immediately that story, and I'll now go, last week I was talking to the CEO of X uh, in Sydney, and she told me, and here's my story. Then that will come to a point, link. So the 
you can, every story can have a, a number of different points and every story can have multiple links. So you can use the same story sometimes with different outcomes because of the way you link it. And that, that becomes the, 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 the fundamental structure for all stories. And what about a presentation? So I've got an hour. <laughs> is, there a, um, is there a structure that you've used in the past that tends to be a fail-safe structure for a presentation if I've got to give one? Yes. Uh, as, I've re- we, as we started this, this, this conversation, uh, Julie, we talked about this first 30 seconds, um, like the way you walk up on stage, the first thing you say in your mouth. So the structure of your story is as the opening, uh, how you open, how you close uh, is as equally important. So primacy and recency, the first thing and the last thing. Then embedded in the presentation itself, uh, particularly if you only have an hour, we suggest what are your three or four major themes? What are your four chunks of ideas you want to get across? So you present something, you're going to have a title. What's your presentation about? That's going to be the concept. Uh, when you go into your chunks, these are your principles. What are the four, three or four principles that will support that concept? And then what's the connected detail, associated detail, that validates that principle that connects to your, to your concept or title? Then in each principle, you need at least one story to illustrate and illuminate the application of that principle in the world. It can be a past story, so someone has done. It could be a scenario, a future um, creation story. So you create a story about um, in a, in a what-if scenario that allows people to see them applying it in the real world. Um, so that becomes essentially the structure of an hour. The, the mistake people make is they overpack their presentations with content. They think content is the is the key. Um, our suggestion with anyone who's designing a presentation is design your presentation for whatever time it is, let's say an hour, and then take out 50% <laughs> I love of your that. content. It's exactly the same principle as packing for overseas. You pack everything you think you need and then take out half because everyone who's traveled overseas with the first time usually is they spend their lives dragging around an enormous amount of stuff which they never need or use. Um, it's uh, and the same same concept in presenting. Less is more. I tend to send an email before each podcast asking a couple of questions. And the first question is, what is the question that you get asked the most frequently? And the second question is, what is the question that people don't ask you that they should? And what I what I found really interesting is that both of yours were kind of the same, just different takes on it. So mm-hmm. you said the question you get asked the most frequently is how do you deal with negative or difficult people? Yeah. And the, the second one that you don't get asked that you should is, is anybody truly rational, which I thought was, yeah. was hilarious. So speak to me a little bit about that. Often we've all got to go in, we've got to deal with somebody that we perceive is going to be difficult, whether they are or they aren't, or we've got, we know we've got to hold a difficult space. Okay. How, how do we prep? What do we do in the room? Now, this, this notion of difficult people, um, obstructionist or hostile, or sometimes overtly cynical, uh, it's, these are the, the weather conditions. Uh, the weather is the weather. Right? You, you just got to deal with whatever the weather is on that day. Uh, you can't complain about the weather. You 
absolutely useless. You go and walk out and go, oh, my God, it's raining. Yes, good description. Uh, so what are you now going to do that it's raining? Well, you're going to do the appropriate things of covering yourself up, carrying an umbrella. Likewise with hostile and negative people. They are hostile and negative for a multitude of reasons. Uh, it's not personal. It's not, they're not, they're not uh, hostile to you personally. They might be hostile to what they think you represent. They might think you're management or they might think that you're a consultant or coming in here to tell me how to do my job better. They'll have a whole narrative that goes around that. What, what do hostile, negative people require? They require the, they have a need to be acknowledged and seen. Acknowledged and seen. When people are angry, uh, it's because one of those two things have been violated, uh, or both. Right? So they, they feel unacknowledged, disrespected, not seen, uh, means that their point of view and their perspective isn't considered. Uh, in America, these are called Trump voters. The, what Trump did is he saw them and acknowledged them, this massive cohort of alienated, marginalized people. And he just simply rode and used their anger as leverage to drive towards his current position as president of the United States. So the idea is not to push back. Uh, uh, I use a little example of this in training rooms. I get people to sit facing each other and then ask one person to hold their fist up in space and the other person to place their fist against that person's fist. So they're now, you're now sitting with your fist against someone else's fist. And then I ask one person to start pushing and one person does. And invariably the person that's getting pushed pushes back. It's instinctive. When someone pushes you, you push back. So if someone is negative and hostile to you and you now react, uh, push back, you just are going to elevate the conflict. You're going to elevate the, the tension or the stress. If you absorb their negativity, absorb their energy, much like a martial artist does when they get attacked by someone, they use the momentum of the attacker to manage it, um, you now will have a very different uh, relationship. Can you give and, me an example of what that might look like? Uh, I was presenting to a group in Brisbane three weeks ago uh, with a Telstra group of people. Uh, these were technicians, um, people who work with their hands, uh, and they were coming into this room to, and they wanted me to talk about culture because there's lots of downsizing and restructuring and people were a bit angry and this whole culture thing. Now, can you imagine? You're, you're a technician guy. You work on the tools. You're constantly installing lines, etc. and now you've got to go sit in a room, listen to some outsider talk to you about culture. And uh, which I think is a bit of a wank anyway. And it's just the whole thing just doesn't fit within their, their normed world. Um, and they were walked in. You could smell the hostility, right? You could sell, smell the resentment. Um, and I get introduced by the head dude, right? And they're, they're all completely disrespecting him, not even looking at him. Uh, so they were, they, were, they were doing their defiance um, through uh, passive. Uh, compliance. Uh, so I walk on, and my first question is uh, uh, How many of you think that this is just a waste of a day? And they just, the heads come up. I said, Look, if I, was, if I was in your position, I'd be sitting, I'm thinking, What the hell am I doing here? Listening to some bloke who I don't know talk about a business that he's not even part of, 
And with all this restructuring and management bullshit that you've got to deal with every day, that your futures are not secured, and some guy's going to come along and sugarcoat all of this. And you could see everyone in the room suddenly go, this guy knows exactly what's going on in my head. So in that way, I just acknowledged their negativity and hostility, respected it, described it as it currently is, and then I moved, and I'm going to deserve time, and then I moved, well, now that we are here, we have a choice. And this is called a truism. A truism is when you acknowledge what is true. We are here. That's true. So therefore, we have a choice. Now, that isn't true, but because the first part is true, it tends to validate the second part. So because we are here, we now have a choice. And the choice is how do I want to spend this day? So I'm now putting the onus of responsibility to them, saying that their hostility and negativity is their current choice. Now how do you want to play? So this becomes now uh, giving them the power to decide how to contribute to the day rather than trying to coerce, seduce, uh, compel, or whatever to get them to get them to play and so th th this is a way of using and managing negativity and hostility so first of all it's not personal secondly you leverage it thirdly you acknowledge and uh, respect the fact that that's their current state and then you move them to a choice point around how they may choose to behave or cooperate and that becomes a way of working with negative and difficult people what's great about the the choice point because i could I could feel when you were saying, you know, acknowledge what's there. I could almost feel the fear come up of, oh my goodness, if I, if I speak it, then we're going to get stuck in it. You know, I know that it's there. They know that it's there. But if I bring it into the room, I don't know that I'm going to be able to get it out again. Mm -hmm. And to bring it to the choice point is just a really elegant way of getting it out of the room again, which is, you know, we can either, we can do one of two things here. We can get stay stuck or we can find a way to work it. I'm, um, you've got me thinking about personal gravity now. I mentioned it a little bit before. The reason I want to bring it up with you, especially when we're talking about dealing with difficult people is there was something that you said to me years ago and it stuck with me and I, I didn't quite know what to do with it at the time, but it's become something that's kind of acted as a bit of a guiding light. And we were, we were talking in a cafe, using context, mm -hmm. talking in a cafe and I was talking about probably dealing with somebody that I was finding challenging at the time. And you said something that you need to work on is you need to get rid of your little girl mm. and you need to call in the older woman. Mm. And at the time, I remember looking at you going, I have no idea what to do with that, but okay. Yet it has become something that I think about a lot and a way of grounding myself and giving myself gravity before I walk into a room. And that is something that, that you have in spades, just that personal gravity. When you step in, it's like whoosh, you know, the air gets sucked out of a room. Can you decode that? Is there a way of replicating that? So this is, there's, there's gender dynamics here uh, in play. Uh, now this little girl thing uh, with women, the, another way of describing this is they play cute. They're cute. And because cute is rewarded when you're a, a little girl. Aren't you cute? You say cute. When you become a teenager, cute is a sy 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 synonym for being attractive. 
she's really cute or he's cute. Uh, so there's now uh, it now becomes uh, it's got emotional weight to it. Um, and if you if you are identified, validated as being cute, well, clearly you start thinking, well, that's a useful strategy. And unconsciously, you start to use cute as a device to uh, get people to like you, to be likable, uh, to facilitate connection. And it is, it works. It, it's a very, it's a very uh, nifty technique until about the age of 25. Uh, after that, it starts to look, uh, it, it loses effect. Now, this cute thing um, with women lasts for some, for decades. Now, I'm going to go into a story, obviously, because now I want to illustrate what I'm just describing. And this is a head of strategy of a major insurance company here in Sydney, Australia. Uh, she, was, she, was, she presented the, the strategy to the board. It was her first time. She had only been in the job about eight months. It was the first board presentation of strategy. And at the end of the delivery, the chairperson said, uh, could you come back next month and re-present that? Um, that wasn't good enough. Oh wow. oh, wow. Can you imagine, right? So she was just shattered by that. So she called us in to work with her. I said, all right, um, let's say her name is Anna. And I said, okay, Anna, uh, can you uh, present how you present it to the board? So she sat up. Uh, she had her hands in front of her and she tilted her head. She went into what's called soft eyes or bhakti eyes, we call it. It means eyes of worship. Uh, so, you know, when, when someone, when people are around celebrities, I don't know if you've ever seen this, they go into soft eyes, bhakti. Yeah, uh, in England we call that doe eyes. Doe eyes, yeah. So they're adoring. They've got this adoring look. And so she got head tilt, um, these doe eyes, and starts to speak. I said, stop. I said, well, I haven't really started. I said, yes, you have. You've already gone and you've reached for cute. She goes, what do you mean cute? I said, just look at you. And I got my phone out, took a photograph and showed her. She went, oh, my God. I said, all right, let's start again. <laughs> all right, now, you're our head of strategy. You're 43 years old. You're a woman of substance and accomplishment. How dare you sit here with a little cute doe-eye bullshit? What are you trying to do? And she, you know, she was just like aghast at me. Now, the reason I got, I got um, confront, confrontational is that it's a, you need to shock sometimes people into awareness, into wakefulness. Also, I calibrated that she was a strong person, strong character, and her past was an indicative of this. Uh, and so we just changed the, changed the body posture. We got the head looking straight and got the eyes looking focused. Uh, and, of course, we made a few adjustments with the content delivery, but her tone of voice, she dropped the sort of, oh, I'm going to talk about strategy and where we're heading as an organization <laughs> and to all that breathiness all got, got that out. So essentially we didn't change anything in the presentation, a few tweaks, but what we did change was her stepping into her woman, into her power, into her authority. Can you imagine Gail Kelly doing cute in you know, the head of uh, the Paseo Westpac? It'd just, just be inconceivable. Just you, know, you, you look at her and you see nothing but a testament to authority, a, a woman of great heft, great accomplishment. So that's what we mean by that. With men, they go into joker. They've got a joke all the time. They, you know, they have this joker thing. And it's a similar uh, relationship to cute in that they got affirmed for it. They got liked for it. 
it became a, a technique to, to, to diffuse um, uh, uh, conflict or stress or anxiety. Uh, and so they, 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 they bring this up inappropriately and it immediately compromises their gravitas. It immediately dilutes their impact and authority. There is something mm. about stillness for me. So stillness when you walk into a room, stillness before you speak, just standing, grounding down, owning your space, owning the moment before you open your mouth. Mm. There's an authority to that that I think regardless of gender is really powerful. And it's something um, that you do incredibly well. Yeah, it's, it's the owning, owning the space um, concept. Uh, there's a Canadian presenter um, who uh, taught me this guy called David Wood. And he does this notion of you walk on, you plant, like you plant both feet on the ground and count two beats, one, two, and then speak. And there is that, there's that, that comfort in the silence at the start that gets people's attention. Mm. Whereas, you know, you see poor presenters, they walk on, they immediately start gabbling. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, they just, they don't have that stillness. Stillness is a beautiful description, Julie. That, that is a, a lovely way to access that state. Mm. And you, I love that you just called it the comfort because as we all know when we're doing it, stillness when you're speaking or stillness when you're presenting is actually one of the most terrifying places to be. That pause, mm-hmm. that moment of silence, yet for your audience when they see that you have the confidence to be still, when they see that you've got the confidence to take a breath, it is immensely comforting for them. Mm. Now in in finishing up, I'm going to ask you a question that I try to always finish on, which is trying to summarize, you know, what your what your one thing is, what's your what's your one powerful message that you're that you're trying to influence people. And the way that I the way that I get to that is if I could give you a stage and I could give you a microphone and in front of you somehow magically I could put every single person that you would hope to influence. What's the one thing that you would want to say or that you would want them to know? It's not about you is, is how I'd sum it up. So many, so many people are so self-focused. Um, so people suffer from terminal uniqueness. Uh, they have, have a perception of themselves as, as sort of super special or something, or they think the world is about them. And it's, there's a, so much suffering that goes with that. Um, first of all, if you're not getting the, the, the response that you want and you take it personally, you suffer it. Uh, if things go wrong, um, you feel like it's the world is against you. It's not. The world doesn't care, and you start to suffer. Uh, you also have an expectation of fairness, and fairness is a myth. Uh, and when things, as they always do, um, sometimes will occur, will be unfair. Uh, you take that personally, you suffer. But importantly, as a communicator, it's not about you. It's about your audience. It's always about the receiver of your communication. That's the, where you place your attention. That's where you place your focus. And the more you genuinely do that, the more powerful and effective you'll be as a communicator. Also, you'll adjust uh, appropriately because when it's about the audience, you do what's needed to 
get the message across or facilitate engagement. If that means you have to roll across the floor to make a point, you will roll across the floor. You won't be going, oh, I'm an idiot. I wonder what they'll think of me. This is stupid. No, your attention is on yourself. So attention on your on the other, on the audience. It's not about you. There's 7 billion people on this planet. Sometimes it's not about you is a useful maxim to live by. And, uh, and the audiences pick this up immediately. Um, I'm sure you've been at, I mean, how many, how many speakers have you seen in your, oh, <laughs> your career? And you've seen the ones that walk on the stage and you know it's about them. They love the limelight. They love the applause. It's a sense of hunger, I find. You can feel it. Yeah. And and how do you respond to that person? Well, you're going, right, uh, are we here just to validate you? Just, is, this, is this what this is about? Because that's exactly what it's about. Uh, when, in fact, you're there in service of the audience. You're there in service of the message. You're there in service of the outcome. And um, I think that would be the thing I'd teach or leave them with. I love that. I love that. Well, Colin James, it's been, as always, a, a pleasure, a pleasure and a mental delight talking to you. Thank you so much for making the time and being on my podcast. Julie, uh, honestly, thank you. Uh, always love talking about um, the opportunity to support people in their own growth and development. And thanks for the forum and for the chance to have a lovely chat. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.